NASDAQ Governance Solutions provides a suite of board technologies and services that enable boards and leadership teams to deliver to the highest standards. We aim to be the single trusted partner to boards. NASDAQ Governance Solutions serves 225,000 board portal users, 330 of the Fortune 500, and 75 of the Fortune 100, and nearly 7,000 global organizations. This is Engage Governance, the podcast series from the Chartered Governance Institute, UK and Ireland. Today, I'm speaking to James Beasley, Senior Director at NASDAQ Governance Solutions, about risk governance and risk oversight. James, could you introduce yourself and begin by telling us why you think risk governance is an important topic? Thanks, Rachel. And um, yeah, to introduce myself, my, my role is the lead board advisory and the NASDAQ Centre for Board Excellence in Europe, Middle East and Africa. Um, with a focus on board effectiveness and board, board advisory support. Risk governance for me is always going to be an important topic. It's come to the fore in recent years as the, the risk universe, if we can call it that, expands and becomes more complex and more opaque. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the traditionally understood quantitative risks, so when we think about um, typical risks that have kind of a financial connotation, they're easily mm-hmm. quantifiable. They remain, but now non-financial risks such as um, people risks and cyber yeah. risk, etc., mm-hmm. seem to be taking up increasing time and being far more prominent in the top risks, if we can call it reported to the board. We sometimes refer to those as not easily quantifiable risks, mm-hmm. and there's a reason for that. You know, they're just that. They're difficult to put an appetite and, and tolerances mm-hmm. around. If you think about the traditional approach to to risk governance and risk oversight. Yeah. It's been defining the risks that apply to the organization, um, any kind of subcategories of those, defining an appetite, i.e. quantifying how much of it you're willing to, to take and defining some tolerances around that in terms of you know, where are you happy to, to flex. As we've come to understand risk a lot more and um, you know, practice have been put in place to, to define um, insofar as we can, those mm-hmm. less easily quantifiable risks, um, then you know that's really challenged some of those assumptions and traditional ways of working, mm-hmm. which has then you know led to an impact on the board where um, they've had to figure out how to deal with them. So you know a default might be to ensure there's an expert in the most prominent um, risks on the board, mm-hmm. or ensuring the board has standing access to experts in that area. But time again, it is these risks that are being referenced in board evaluations as the things that keep non-executive directors up at night. Some organisations, frankly, have not historically been in a leading or even comfortable position around risk oversight. It's been an area of challenge for a number of organisations for for many, many years. And in in the regulated world, it's often something that um, you know, external parties yeah, look at a bit more closely mm. in order to, and in the listed world, I suppose, in order to, um, you know, use risk governance as something of a something of a case study. Um, and and it's particularly been an issue in industries where risk hasn't necessarily been seen as a priority. So, mm. you know, if we if we think about the prevalence of board level risk committees outside of something like financial services. Mm. Um, where that might be a standard, uh, you know, there are clear hotter spots and, and clearly, you know, much, much cooler spots. So, 
you know, the, the new world, if we can call it that, gives no quarter in this regard. Mm. There isn't really a lot of room um, to and a lot of time to kind of wake up to good risk oversight and understanding mm. um, risks as they apply to an organization. You know, any company can be subject to a cyber attack. Yes. be impacted by supply chain issues or geopolitical risks mm. um, such as the war in Ukraine, um, people risks from a tight labour market and new working patterns. So would you say those are the um, the sorts of risks that you're, that the boards that you you work with are highlighting as priorities for them, these the examples of these new kinds of risks? Um, are there any other examples? I think you can you can start to break down some of the risks in a little more detail, and some are more easily manageable or or um, easily controlled for, if you like, um, than others. But yeah, I mean th- those are the ones that I would really highlight as coming through as priorities for the boards that we work with when we when we're having board evaluations. For example, it is cyber, it's geopolitical risks, mm-hmm. it's supply chain matters, it's people and and talent, but. Going back to that point in terms of you can then break them down a little more, you know, under people and talent, succession risk, mm. if you can define it as that, is something that is coming up time and time again. You know, it's a sub-characteristic of a tight labour market, mm. but it's an incredibly impactful aspect. And when linked into governance, so you can put it under people, you could sit it between governance and people risks, if you like, if that's how you define your risks. Mm. But when you link it to governance, you know, these things become quite critical in terms of you know, the ability of the board to discharge its role in effectively overseeing and, and, and challenging management. Um, and it's critical for senior leaders in the organisation to have a handle on um, so that, you know, they don't lose key people at, uh, at, at the least convenient time. Mm. Mm. I wondered as well about um, things like reputational risk. Um, and in some ways, linked to geopolitical risk that you talked about, um, you know, an increasing demand from stakeholders for companies to take a position on topical issues. Do you think there's increased reputational risk there? I think I, th- I think reputational risk is is one of those very interesting risks, which then leads into or, or has touch points with lots of lots of other risks. It can also mm. it can almost be consequential mm. um, to to certain other risks, and it's a perfect example that you provided with with geopolitical risk, for example, um, your reputations were damaged with, uh, for organizations with their response to um, you know, the war in Ukraine. It depends on the stakeholders that you're, mm. that you're answerable to and you're, you're focused upon and affected the most by. Yeah. Um, but things such as yeah, reputational risk are, are critical um, to an organization to try to understand and those touch points with the other risks and the causes yeah. for increasing reputational risk. Based by based on those other risks are um, are, are really where that focus at the board level needs to be. Mm-hmm. So, do you think risk governance um, should focus on the board and its relevant committees? Yes and no. I mean, the, the board and its committees sit at the top of the pyramid, so it's the it's it's the board's responsibility to oversee the risk profile of the organisation, mm-hmm. um, focusing on the top risks and ensuring that it has an effective framework for managing risk, including things like sound governance, independent monitoring, a defined appetite, et cetera. Mm. So so strong boards set up the framework well and keep it under regular review as part of the responsibilities apportioned under that framework. 
And do you think oversight is a matter for the full board or for an individual committee such as the risk committee or the audit and risk committee? Or should it be something for both? Yeah, both in practice. Maybe. Mm-hmm. So, so setting up a risk committee or an audit and risk committee doesn't absolve the board of its, of its mm-hmm. responsibilities, but it does provide a, a focus forum that can better inform the, the broader board. Mm-hmm. So, so in practice, if we're thinking about you know, what those different bodies do, there should still be risk reporting to the board, but it, 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 it will likely be coming through the risk committee in that kind mm-hmm. of setup or the, or the audit and risk committee where there's been a board level debate on the risks mm-hmm. and the takeaways from that debate um, and some of the key messages from the management information that was being provided should be played, in, should be played to the wider board's um, uh, you know, agenda. Mm-hmm. And do you think there's a, a gold standard approach that firms should follow when it comes to risk oversight? Yeah, there, there's something called the, the three lines of defence model, which is applied in you know, a lot of um, listed organisations, um, regulated organisations where risk has been a, you know, a focus for a, for a long, long time. Essentially, it means that the, the, the first line of defence is, is the business. So it's the people making the day-to-day business decisions, who to work with, you know, what to charge people, um, how they how they operate as an organization, how they deliver their products, their services, et cetera, et cetera. The view is that you know, those are the individuals responsible for managing risk. They take the ownership because they're at the coalface, they're at the front line. Um, and those decisions can be taken within that structure, so within the business structure through the through the different levels of management and up ultimately to the to the CEO. Mm-hmm. The second line, um, if, we, if we're talking gold standards, we're thinking about mm-hmm. three lines. The second line is a risk function or a risk and compliance function. And they should be independent from the first line, from the business. Mm-hmm. So what they should be able to do is with a hypothetical peering over the shoulder mm-hmm. and looking at the behaviours, looking at the things that are um, that are happening within the business, looking at the numbers, you know, what's coming out of um, the, the business that is being transacted and say, uh, you know, that is in line with what we're supposed to be doing or that's in line with appetite or, or, or otherwise. There can be, particularly on the compliance side, something of an advisory element to the business. Um, they typically own the overall framework in terms of writing the policies or own, own the policies for um, for application that should be that should be followed, um, but most importantly, they have a kind of a monitoring role. As I said, looking over the shoulder, they define that in a in a formal plan year on year, where they might look into individual risks, individual aspects of the business, um, to then get an understanding of how risk is is actually being managed and um, you know how that should apply to the firm. And in that structure, the risk function is headed by a chief risk officer or a head of risk um, who is independent, who has a reporting line separate to the CEO um, where they can, uh, they can escalate, they can, they're of a suitable seniority uh, in order to have access to the board, to be asked for opinion by the board, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then the third line of that is um, internal audit essentially as a function so it's, it's providing the independent assurance over those first and second lines. so the two things that come in front of it mm-hmm. and so the board kind of sits over the top of that structure 
where it can receive reporting through its committees or directly from the three lines and can get the picture of how those things converge and make sure they're asking the right questions where there might be um, uh, you know, potential conflicts, where there might be disagreements, et cetera, by, you know, between the different lines and uh, you know, allocate the different actions to be taken. So the three lines of defense model, I think, is, is one that it's a bit like capitalism. It's not perfect, but it's the best mm. we've got. <laughs> I think that's, that's kind of the view, if you like. You know, there's there's always learnings that it needs mm-hmm. to be applied proportionately. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of the most effective way of doing so. And we've talked a little bit about how the risk landscape is evolving um, away from, like you said before, quantifiable, tangible risks. Um and we've talked about the specific risks that boards are highlighting. Um, mm. What challenges do you think this evolving landscape and these new risks um, are posing to board performance? Well, I think boards are trying to manage the ever-growing risk universe and mm. ever-evolving threats that, that they see. And that, that's demanding a number of things, really, in terms of changing behaviour. I, I think we are seeing increasing prevalence of independent risk functions and chief mm. risk officer roles. Um, many of those chief risk officers sit on the board. They actually mm. have a board seat, just like the CEO or the CFO. Traditionally, we're seeing them being uh, needing to be day in, day out, sitting on that board, taking mm. the collective accountability for giving you know, vital, vital input. So you know, it's posing a challenge to organisations where they might be having to set up a completely new way of thinking about risk, which mm. comes with a lot of time and effort and, and, and resource investment. Mm. Um, we are seeing evolving management information with more focus on tailoring to audiences. Um, so, you know, what the Exco sees should not be the same as what the board level risk committee sees, which should not be the same as what the, the board sees. Um, we're definitely seeing an evolution towards much more forward-looking trends analysis. Mm. So not just saying this is this is the risk profile of the organization, this is where we were last week and or last month or last quarter, mm. and this is where we are now, but much more focusing on, okay, these are the top risks as they stand today. Mm. This is where we're expecting them to go based on the trends that we're seeing and based on the up-to-date information. These are the other ones we think you need to be thinking about because they're not necessarily on our radar at this level, mm. but you know the trends are indicating that they should be. Um, and we're seeing a lot more opinion from risk functions as well. So we're seeing boards looking for that person internally that they can trust who has that degree of independence, going back to the three lines of defence model, mm. um, where they can actually say, look, what is your view on this? So we're seeing chief risk officers you know, even in cover sheets on, on management information, having a little box for their own opinion on management proposals, for example, mm-hmm. which is quite interesting um, and very powerful, by the way. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it shows that the chief risk officer in those kind of scenarios really has, um, you know, gravitas and authority, which is very important when thinking about mm-hmm. effectively overseeing risk. Um, and then, you know, we're seeing uh, risk committees, which are dedicated to, potentially those top risks or those top risk categories mm. and even working groups which go uh, which which cross the board exec and management levels mm. so you know if you think about how a 
you know, an, an executive risk committee might say, you know, might just be an overall effectively enterprise risk committee chaired by the CRO. Then underneath that, you might traditionally have an operational risk committee or a credit risk committee or, or a market risk committee, whatever it might be. We're seeing that a bit more even at the board level mm. now where, um, you know, boards are thinking, okay, well, even if it's not a formal committee of the board or subcommittee as it would be of the, of, of the board, we need a kind of a working group where we get certain people who are authorities on this on the board, maybe together with some of the folk from management who are the experts on this, to have some form of working group where they discuss some of these topics, they share learning and insights mm. so that we can get ahead of this stuff that ultimately gets covered at the board risk committee and at the board. Um, so people looking outside the box to, to kind of tailor the governance to that evolving risk landscape. And that involves a bit of commitment that your committee structure isn't necessarily permanent. Right? Mm. If, you, if you set up a working group or, or something like that tomorrow, it doesn't mean it needs to be there for you know, forever or for the next 10 years or so. Mm. It might just be that right now we think the right thing to do is we're facing an acute risk here and we need to make sure that it's getting the attention that it gets. Mm-hmm. Um, the only challenge with that kind of structure, of course, is you need to make sure that the this remains a board thing and mm. uh, or a board-led thing and it's not crossing that line into into day-to-day management of the firm. Yeah. Yes. Um, and do you think that means then that the board needs to have a board member aligned to each of these new risks that um, organisations are facing? Um, in short, no. Mm. Uh, when we think about composition of boards, when we look at skills or composition matrices, etc., you rarely do organizations have a lead director for each item on the checklist. Mm. Um, you know, boards can't grow indefinitely in size in order to do so, and nor yeah. would that necessarily add, add value. So training and upskilling inevitably come, inevitably becomes a focus. Uh, formal, mm. annually refreshed board training programs can be hugely beneficial, mm-hmm. as can individual development plans for non-executive directors. So if we think about... You know, if you go through a board evaluation, uh, perhaps there is an individual director view there, some 360 peer-to-peer feedback um, on individuals' contribution. Those discussions as part of an appraisal or just a feedback session between the individual NEDs uh, or directors and the, the board chair, you know, they can they can point to areas where um, contribution might not necessarily be meeting the expectation where the board does think it should have certain risk covered on mm. but it can also uncover situations where individuals might have a particular interest even if they don't have a particularly strong background in an individual risk or um your related topic which might just form part of their own personal development mm. and kill two birds with one stone as we say yeah so you know there's some powerful tools there to head off needing the, you know, chair-labeled cyber risk and just thinking about, you know, what else what else can be done about it really from a from a softer and ongoing point of view. Good onboarding practices for NEDs um, to anticipate gaps and, and plan to to fill them. Um, a, a, a very powerful mm-hmm. and runs and roles like specific risk champions can provide focus. Mm-hmm. So going back to that point where someone might put their hand up, you might say, look, you know, cyber risk is of a particular challenge to us. Um, we would quite like someone from amongst the from amongst the board to 
take responsibility for diving a little bit deeper into the topic, making mm-hmm. sure that it's represented um, during discussions. We kind of have that, um, you know, that 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 uh, that thing under their name tag, if you like, that says mm-hmm. cyber risk as a champion. Um, you know, these can be powerful initiatives. And do you have any useful tips for um, how boards can test the effectiveness of the organization's risk governance? Deep dives are quite an interesting, in, mm. interesting tool. So if we look at individual scenarios, individual decisions, individual risks, um, particularly if you have a three lines of defense model where you have an independent um, function to go to, or you have an internal audit function to go to, to commission the deep dive, if you like. Mm. The, that can provide that qualitative insight into, in reality, how well is risk being managed or, or, or overseen. So it might be that you've just had a cyber attack or um, one of your peers has or something like that. I'm using cyber a lot as an example. Mm. It's on everyone's, it's on yeah. everyone's plate. Um, but you might say, okay, look, let's, let's scenario test this. Let's look at what would happen if, or let's look at, what has just happened and let's deep dive into exactly what steps were taken who made what decisions when were people informed how and was that all in line with our mm. with our government so deep dives are you know they're a commitment but they're they're a very powerful tool and alongside that maybe less ad hoc but more as a um a general or ongoing plan where you can have a whole host of things that you want to focus on scenario planning and testing can be a very powerful tool for the board where you might look at something every quarter or a couple of things a year, whatever it might be, um, when you, you you might say, okay, if we were subject to a, to a cyber attack, how would that work? Mm. Um, and you invite that feedback from the relevant individuals. And then I think the other thing, I would just encourage boards to, um, to look at processes, you know, to, to say, okay, our risk appetite setting process is there enough challenge on are these the right risks that we're looking at here? Are these the right tolerances? Are we clear on um, the risk appetites that we set given we have these less tangible risks now mm. to, to cover off? Do we really know what we mean in these areas? Mm. Um, are the right people being invited for their input into the process and in the right order? You know, is the mm. CRO involved? Are the relevant managers involved? Is the board involved, board risk committee, exco, et cetera? Um, and again, you know, use that not necessarily as a deep dive, but just in the same way that you look at your terms of reference every year, if you like, look at a process and just say, where well, it's an annual thing. How did that go? Let's reflect. Maybe you can do that as part of a board evaluation um, or some more um, ad hoc process. Mm. And um, just as a final um, thought, uh, what do organizations typically do to embed in independence of the risk function? Um a number of things. So uh, I mentioned with the, the role of the CRO um, when we were speaking earlier on and, and having an independent reporting line outside of the CEO. What I mean by that is a, a reporting line or having the ear of the chair of the board, the chair yeah. of the, the, the board risk committee, where they're not going to be blocked from escalating um, by, say, the CEO or management, if there was some dysfunction there or some particular challenge that really needed uh, that really needed flagging. So making sure that connection is very, very clear. And practically, that means regular catch-ups as much as mm. just being aware of each other and having the, um, you know, having the, the route open, if you like. It's mm. more, 
you know, there needs to be a relationship there of mm. trust that's built over time and is a focus. Um, you know, aligned to that, the board or the board risk committee, if there is one, should have explicit responsibilities for overseeing the independence mm. um, of the function, um, as well as specifically appointing, dismissing, and agreeing the remuneration of the CRO. So again, making sure that's taken out, reinforcing that independence mm-hmm. by taking that out of the, the pure management reporting line field mm-hmm. and putting that into something that the board has explicit responsibility for or its appointed, appointed committee. Um, I talked about evolving practices earlier on with uh, management information, for example, mm-hmm. and an important one that I wanted to, to re-emphasize there actually is around uh, ensuring that the uh, organization gathers the CRO's view or the risk function's view on any major management proposals. So inviting that input, giving the function an opportunity to say either, yep, like we've been involved in the process, we're comfortable, mm-hmm. we're fine. Or maybe, you know, we would recommend to the board actually that they looked into this or that or, or mm-hmm. did X or Y. Um, that can be incredibly cool. Um, the right for the risk function to attend all committees mm-hmm. insofar as they're relevant is an important one. So making sure that uh, the risk function is suitably embedded and has that authority to, if it needs to understand something a little bit more, sit in on that meeting where that mm-hmm. thing is being discussed. And then finally, having a formal monitoring plan that's approved by the board or the BRC as well. So where the, the function can actually say, this is what we're planning to do this year. This is what we're going to look at from a risk point of view. Um, and making sure that gets signed off and sponsored, if you like, by the board or the board risk mm-hmm. committee. Put all together, those things should really be pointing an organisation in the direction of having a robust risk function, which will only be- benefit the organisation and will benefit the board in allowing it to, to do its work more effectively. Mm. Well, thank you. That's a really useful um, note to finish on. Um, and it's been a really interesting discussion about the evolving risk landscape and how... Um, boards can approach these new, um, less tangible risks and um, take steps to manage them effectively. Thank you very much for your insights today, James. Thank you, Rachel. Engage Governance. Look out for more podcasts coming soon. We would like to thank our sponsors and experts for supporting the launch of the Engage Governance podcast series. To access more podcasts, and other useful governance tools like our guidance notes, blogs and articles, please visit www.cgi.org.uk. Our solutions include board portal software, NASDAQ BoardVantage, digitised board director and senior leadership performance evaluations, and digitised data collection for things like conflicts management and related parties monitoring. Under the NASDAQ Governance Solutions umbrella, we also have the NASDAQ Centre for Board Excellence, our international community development and board leadership initiative aimed at advancing strong governance practices, fostering debate and connecting people. NCBE, as we sometimes call it, is a thriving platform open to board directors, business leaders and governance practitioners 